It's good to see you guys this morning. Glad that glad that you're here. Um, so today is the last sermon in our series through preaching through the Bible. So we've been doing a one year Bible reading plan. Uh, the Bible reading plan actually has a couple of weeks left, but this is the last week that we're going to preach uh, out of that Bible reading plan because uh, next week begins the season of Advent, and so we are going to be uh, starting a new sermon series, and we're going to be uh, doing an Advent series talking about. Uh, who Jesus is, and so we're really excited about that. That'll be uh, taking place next Sunday. Um, But today, before I uh, jump into the sermon, I did want to let you know uh, one more quick announcement. Um, On December the 8th, uh, we are going to be having Giving Week. Okay, and so December the 8th, we're going to be setting that Sunday aside as a, as a Sunday for us to give above and beyond our tithes and offerings to missions, all right? And so we're going to be taking up an offering that's, and every single bit of that offering is going to be going towards taking the gospel to uh, help plant churches both here in North America and also globally. And so I wanted to kind of give you a couple of weeks heads up on that so that you were aware so that you could prayerfully uh, uh, seek God's guidance into how he might want you to participate uh, coming up in two weeks on December the 8th. So just uh, wanted to give you a heads up uh, to be prepared for that. Now this morning, we're going to be in First Peter, book of First Peter. It's way back towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, it's right before Second uh, Peter. Um, it's also before first, second, and third John. Uh, so first Peter, uh, if you uh, have your Bibles, you can turn there. And we're going to be in chapter two. Uh, we're going to start in verse thirteen, and we're actually going to go through chapter three, verse seven. Uh, the words will also be on the screen behind me. So let me read first Peter two, starting in verse thirteen. This is the word of God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let me pray. Father, um, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your wise plan and the way that you have structured and, and, and ordained an order in creation. God, I just the one thing I want to ask this morning is I pray for humble hearts. I pray that you would humble my heart. I pray that you would humble the hearts of every single person here and that we would listen to what you have to say in your word. I pray, oh God, that you would help us to trust you. Lord, I pray that you would expose pride in our lives. Nothing will expose pride in our lives like a passage like this one right here. God, I, I pray that you would, would help us, Lord, to, to trust you and help us to learn what it looks like to live in submission to you. And like Thomas prayed earlier, God, I pray that you would help us to see how wonderful and how glorious it is to live in submission to such a good father and to walk and trust with you. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here that has not turned from their sin and trusted in you and surrendered their lives to you, if there's anybody here who is living in rebellion against you, I pray that this morning they would hear the good news that forgiveness of sins is offered to them because of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Father, we love you. I pray that you would please help me to preach now. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, one of the big questions that the book of 1 Peter answers is, how are we to live as Christians in a hostile world? How are we to live as Christians in a world that oftentimes is, is hostile towards the gospel? And the, the primary answer that Peter gives in the book of 1 Peter uh, is in chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Now that word holy means to be set apart. It means to be different than. So Peter's answer for how are we to live in a world that's, that's hostile as followers of Jesus is that we are to live differently. We're to live set apart lives. We are to reflect our creator. We're to reflect Jesus. In chapter 2, he says you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And, and later in chapter 2, he describes it like this in verse 11 and 12. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter says that Christians should remember that this world is passing away with all of its desires, but the kingdom of God remains forever and we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We should be witnesses of our king and representatives of the kingdom. And today's passage that we're looking at specifically addresses how we do this in the public sphere and in our relationships. Uh, The main point of this passage today in one sentence is Christians are called to glorify God by submitting to those He has placed in authority over us. Christians are called to glorify God by submitting to those He has placed in authority over us. Now, there's a couple of problems here because uh, the first problem is that we don't like to submit, do we? Nobody likes to submit. I don't, I, I mean, I, I, when you tell me to submit, my immediate reaction is to kind of bristle, like submit to who, right? And, and we kind of all kind of have that disposition, don't we? And, and in an autonomous society, it's kind of like a curse word. That's why the title of this sermon is the S word. And the second problem is that many people who are in authority... Uh, are oftentimes unjust or unbelieving. So how is it that, that Christians are to behave and to submit to authority structures when oftentimes the people that are in authority over us are, are not believers and they don't see things the same way that we do? How then should we live? Here's a couple of practical examples for why this really uh, matters for us, this text does. Think about this. Think about how does... A, a believing wife honor her unbelieving husband when he doesn't want her spending so much time with God and other believers? Like, what does she do? Their purposes are crossed. Or how about this? How does a Christian employee perform with excellence and maintain integrity when his boss wants him to cut corners at work to try to increase output? Like, what do you do as a follower of Jesus in a situation like that? Or how should Christians relate to the government and the laws of the land when those laws are either unjust or they clash with God's law? What do we do? For example, you think about the Christians in China who right now have been told that they are not to gather together. They're not allowed to gather together in public worship. What do they do? Do they disobey the law of the land? Or do they obey the edict of the governing authorities and neglect to meet together? This is why these questions like these are why 1 Peter 2, uh, 13-3-7 were written. To give us instructions on how to live in a way that honors Jesus within these various realms of society. So, This morning, we're going to look at what it means to be subject to authorities in general, and then we're going to look specifically at how this plays out in relation to government, how it plays out in society, and how it plays out inside the home. And then finally, we're going to see how it's even possible to do this, because God is, is Peter right here in chapter 2 and 3 is asking us to do something that quite frankly is impossible for us to do. He's calling us to honor and to be subject even to unjust authorities. 
And I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but it's extremely difficult. And so we're going to see how it's even possible for us to do that. So let's, let's start by answering the question, what does it mean to be subject to authority? So the, the, the Greek word that's used there is a word uh, called ipotasso, and it means to, to be subject or to submit. It's found four times in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3. It, it literally means to place in an orderly fashion, to come underneath an order that has been set. Uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says, be subject to every human institution. So we're to be subject to the governing authorities that are set in place. In verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, wives, be subject to to your husbands. And then in chapter 3, verse 22, he says that all things have been put into subjection under Jesus. So this passage makes clear that, that God is the one that has placed authority figures into place. Verse 14 says that they're sent by him to punish those who do good and to praise those, uh, or to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, I think, uh, says it even more clearly. I'll read that for you. It says this, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that, have, have, that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. We submit to authorities because by doing so, we're submitting to God, the one who has placed them there. When we bristle at the idea of submitting to authorities placed in our lives, we're really bristling at God's authority. There's no way around that because God's ultimate purpose is not to give us what we want. God's ultimate purpose is that we would glorify Him and bear witness by looking like Jesus. The submission to authority is actually an opportunity to glorify God. But what about authority figures, figures who do not do what is right? Paul says that uh, governing officials have been put into place uh, so that um, they can reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. But what about authority figures who do the opposite? who punish the righteous, and who reward wickedness. <clears throat> what happens when unjust government officials do things like this? Do we just explain this away by saying, well, God's just not involved? Of course not. So why does God allow this to happen? Because there's no better opportunity to look like Jesus than when we're being mistreated or we're in subjection to someone that we don't want to be in subjection to. Look at verses 18 to 21 again, 1 Peter 2. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then listen to verse 21. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. We are called to a life of following in Jesus' steps. And those steps lead to being treated like Jesus was treated. This verse, by the way, blows the prosperity gospel into bits. There are so-called preachers out there who will tell you that Jesus died for you to give you comfort and prosperity now, and that all suffering is from the devil. These people are called false teachers, and their teaching is directly in contradiction to God's Word. Let me just read it for you again. For to this you have been called. For Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. One of the reasons Peter wrote this letter is because he knew that some Christians would wonder whether they truly had God's favor because they were enduring such intense persecution and suffering. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he actually straight up says, He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. See, your material prosperity and comfort have nothing to do with how much God loves you. The only place you need to look to know how God sees you is to the cross. The cross is where God demonstrated His love for you. At the cross, the love of God was most fully displayed. At the cross, the righteous suffered for the the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. And now we are called to display this same grace that Jesus has given to us by humbly turning the other cheek when we are mistreated. But practically, what does it look like to submit to authority in everyday life? How far should this submission extend? Well, let's talk about what it looks like first in relation to governing authorities in verses 13 to 17. In verse 15, 1 Peter 2.15, he says, This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter says that it's the will of God for us to be law-abiding citizens as Christ followers. In the 4th century, the emperor Julian, he was a Roman emperor, he wrote this about Christians. And by the way, um, he calls Christianity atheism because back in uh, the Roman Empire, the religion of the day was you worshipped a pantheon of Roman gods and goddesses. And so Christians were thought to be atheists who didn't believe in all these gods because Christians only worshiped one God. Uh, So he calls, so when you hear atheist or atheism here in this quote, that's what he's talking about. He's actually talking about Christians. Pretty ironic, isn't it? But here's what Emperor Julian wrote. He said, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. And he's complaining, by the way. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. You can just hear the indignation. While those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render them. And it's very difficult to discredit a group of people who love unconditionally. 
I mean, his complaint is like, those darn Christians are caring for everybody. Why do they love so much? My, my prayer is that the only complaint people will have about Pillar D.C. and Southwest D.C. is that those people love God and people too much. Darn them. This is such an important topic here because of the simple fact that we live in D.C. Though. Yeah, the re- reality is that religious liberty is beginning to erode in our country and it's not going to slow down. Um, Al Mohler, who's the pres- uh, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, recently said that uh, there's, there's really no precedent in history for a culture sliding into secular, secularism the way that we are to suddenly stop on a dime and turn around. In other words, things are going to continue heading in the direction that they're going. Never in the history of the world have things moved at this speed towards secularism only to stop and to turn around. And so his point is that the unique days of unprecedented religious freedom are coming to an end. And Christians are resuming their place as marginalized people in society. And there's two ways we could respond to this. We could panic and put our hope in politicians and in the courts. That's one way we could respond. Or we could entrust ourselves to God and remember that we are exiles here and that this is not our home and that this is not our permanent kingdom. America is a great nation, but... Church, listen to me. America will pass away. The kingdom of God will remain forever. This doesn't mean that we should stop caring. It doesn't mean that we should stop voting. It doesn't mean we should stop advocating for justice for the unborn or for religious liberty. We most certainly should continue to do these things because they're vitally important. But it does mean that we need to hold the results with open hands. And this will free us to radically love even those that oppose us because they're actually not a threat to what we love most, which is Jesus. Because our future with Jesus is guaranteed. You see, if we place our, our faith and our hope in, a, in, a, in an ideal future in America, in a kingdom of this world, it's always going to be under threat because it's going to pass away at some point. And so all we can do is cling as tightly as we can and hope that we can delay the inevitable. But the inevitable for the kingdom of God is that it's going to remain forever. When you live for what you cannot lose, that's when you'll have true peace in your life. Now, here's an important question, though, that we need to answer. Is there ever a time when we should not obey governing authorities? There are times when civil disobedience is necessary. Notice in verse 17, Peter says, Fear God, honor the emperor. We are to fear God and to honor the emperor. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and we render to God the things that are God's. There are several examples in the Bible of civil disobedience when God's law clashes with the laws of the land. I think about Daniel when he was uh, told by the, the edict of, of uh, Darius, uh, he was commanded not to pray anymore. Did he stop praying? No, he continued to pray and he was thrown in the lion's den and we know how that worked out for Daniel's accusers. Daniel was delivered. Or I think about Peter and John when they were uh, preaching the gospel and they were brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and they were told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus or else. 
And they said, we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. We, they, or I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were told to bow down and worship the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had put up, or they'd be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they refused to bow down and to worship the idol and the image that had been made. And they were thrown into the furnace. All of these showed honor to the governing authorities, but they feared the Lord. They're examples for us to follow of how we are to react in situations like that when it comes to relating to governing authorities. But what does it look like in, in everyday society? When I mean everyday society, I'm talking about how, how do we submit to teachers and professors and landlords and bosses and other relationships like that in society? In verses 18 to 20, Paul says, Servants, be subject to your masters. Now, this is not... The, the, uh, the, the type of servitude that, that Paul is referring to here is not comparable to the chattel slavery of African Americans in North America. That's not what was happening in first century Palestine. The Bible clearly condemns what it calls man-stealing or enslaving as evil and wicked. Servants in the New Testament... Uh, usually actually would sell themselves into servitude, oftentimes out of necessity, because they lived in poverty. And so it was actually an opportunity for them to have a roof over their heads, to have food, to be trained in a trade. And they oftentimes had the opportunity to either purchase their own freedom. Uh, they, were, uh, they were given great responsibility many times within the household, and they were included as a part of the household itself. However... Peter does make clear that there were situations where some servants had unjust masters too. In verse 18, he says, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So some of these uh, believers in the church who were servants uh, had masters who were unbelievers. And they were working for people uh, who didn't know Jesus and who were not very gracious. Now, we, we don't have servant-master relationships in this room, but you all have relationships where you need to be subject to someone. Everybody's subject to somebody. Let's think about how this passage applies in a few different situations. Maybe you've got a boss at work who treats you unfairly, right? And uh, it could be because of your Christian faith, or it could just be because your boss is not a very kind person. And your boss treats you unfairly. Well, nothing would be more Christ-like than to continue showing respect and praying for him or her. Or maybe you're a student and you've got a professor that's treating you unfairly because of your Christian faith. Honoring that professor means continuing to work hard and refusing to slander that professor behind his or her back to, uh, when you're talking with other students. Or maybe... You're in a situation where you've got a roommate who's taking advantage of you and not cleaning up and leaving you an unfair amount of the, the work to do inside the house. You can be subject by not taking revenge, by not being passive aggressive. This doesn't mean that you, you can't speak up in a gentle way. Peter's not saying that we should be doormats who are walked upon here. It's completely appropriate to go to them and in gentleness to ask them to please help out more. But 
what Peter is saying is that we should honor everyone and love the hard to love. Even when they don't respond when we go to them and we ask them with patience and kindness. This, this also applies within the church. When we talk about submitting to one another, <clears throat> later in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility towards one another. Oh, within, within the body of Christ, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, if it, out of anywhere else in society, this should be the place where we see this most clearly demonstrated, where we're treating one another with gentleness and with kindness and humility, not demanding our own way when we feel that our rights have been infringed upon, but instead, like Ephesians 5 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, when we dishonor one another within the body of Christ, we're actually dishonoring Jesus. We're called to serve, not to demand our own way, not to, not to stand for our rights, but to lay down our lives for one another. That should be seen most clearly within the church. But what about the home? What does all of this look like within the household? You know, God has designed the home to have a created order. And just as the rest of creation, uh, just like the rest of creation, and part of that created order, 1 Peter 3, verse 1 says, is that wives are to be subject to their husbands. Now, it should be pointed out that verse 7 in chapter 3 clearly commands husbands to show honor to their wives as co-heirs. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. By the way, that term weaker vessel is not meaning that women are somehow uh, less valuable or less than. He's talking about the physical appearance that uh, quite literally, in most cases, I'll know, although I've met some girls that could probably take me, but in general, in general, men are strong, stronger than women. That's what P- Peter is referring to here. So, but, but I want to focus in on that word co-heirs. He says to show honor to your wives because they are co-heirs. This means that wives, women have the same firstborn son status as children of God, as husbands do, as men do. You know, in, in uh, bi- biblical times, it was the firstborn son who received the covenant blessing and the greatest share of the inheritance. And it says that women are co-heirs along with men because in Christ there is neither male nor female. That's what it says in the book of Ephesians. That means that in Christ we all share in the covenant blessings equally. This is also a good time to make an important point to everyone in the room who's in a position of authority. And whether you're a boss whether you've got soldiers or Marines under you, whether you're a teacher and you've got a classroom, or whether you're a a husband and you're leading your home. You have been put into that position to lay your life down for others. Husbands, verse 7 is a clear warning that if you use your strength to subdue your wife instead of to serve and honor her, the Lord will not honor you. It will quite literally shut his ears to your prayer, is what verse 7 says. Jesus has all authority, but what did he use that authority to do? 
He used his authority to lay his life down for the church. Husbands, you are to lay your life down for your bride. And wives, you are to be subject to your husband as he seeks to lead in this way. Again, this does not mean that God wants you to be a doormat at home. When, when, when uh, Peter uses the word obey, he's talking about uh, Sarah's example. It says that as Sarah obeyed Abraham, I know that there were probably some ladies in this room who were like, mm, I don't know about that. I don't know about all of that. When he uses the word obey here, this, he's not talking about a, a, the, a parent-to-child type of obedience. Okay? He is, he, he's, he's talking about being subject to your husband's direction and leadership. It means a position of respect and honoring him and trusting that he is doing his best to lead the family in the way that they should go. That's what he means when he says obey. You should absolutely, wives, speak up and voice your opinion. Definitely. And husbands, you should listen if you know what's good for you, when your wives speak up and she gives her opinion, it'll save you a lot of dumb decisions. My wife has saved me from making a lot of very poor choices because I listen to her wisdom and to her counsel. But what, one of the things I love about Jen is that at the end of the day, she'll, she'll follow me and she'll trust me. She's going to tell me when she thinks that I'm wrong and she's going to tell me when she thinks that I need to do something else. But at the end of the day, she loves and honors and respects my decisions. And it makes me just want to lay my life down even further for her because of that. Because she loves me so well. I want real quick to speak to this though. What if you're married to a non-believer? How do Christian wives and husbands relate to a non-believing spouse? Here's just a few thoughts here. Number one, pray for your unbelieving spouse. When you pray, not only does God hear our prayers, not only are our prayers powerful and effective, but it also protects us from bitterness because we remain more concerned for their soul than about maybe if we're being treated unfairly. So continue to bring your unbelieving spouse to God in prayer. Secondly, serve your unbelieving spouse. Believing wives, 1 Peter 3 says, should seek to win over their unbelieving husband with respectful and pure conduct. And believing husbands should seek to win over their unbelieving wives by protecting them and providing for them and serving them without complaining at all. And third, be devoted to God first and to your spouse second. There will be times when God's word and the desire of your unbelieving spouse are going to clash. What do you do if your spouse says they don't want you to go to church? Or they don't want you to read the Bible with the kids. Just gently explain why you must honor God, but re continue to reinforce your commitment to your spouse and continue to show your spouse by selflessly serving and loving him or her, uh, your love for them. Now all this that we've been talking about is easier said than done. I understand that. Especially when we're being treated unfairly. You know, Our first instinct is it to submit but it's to resist. It's not to turn the other cheek, but to take revenge. The truth of the matter is that we don't want to submit because we're a prideful people. 
Our disdain for submitting to the created order God has put into place really just shows our disdain for submitting to God. We want to be God. (laughs) So we strive with Him. And we clash against uh, the structures that He's put into place. So if that's how all of us are naturally bent to, to kind of rebel against that, how do we possibly do any of this? Like, how are you going to be able to possibly go and put this into practice when everything within you wants to fight for your rights and wants to strike back whenever somebody insults you? Well, let's look at what First Peter 2 says. He's going to tell us. Look at verse 24 again. It says, Talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the first way that we're able to submit to authority, especially when we're being untreated, is by the atonement of Jesus. The reality is that you and I have failed miserably at following Jesus' example and his commands. All of us have fallen short, especially commands like this, turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That's, those are some of the most difficult commands in all of the Bible. They're ones that I fail out all the time. In Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 38 to 48, Jesus gives those commands. He tells us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemy, and to pray for those who persecute us. And then he caps it all off in verse 48 saying, You therefore must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That passage like obliterates self-righteousness. And to our dismay, we find that we can't do any of these things. No matter how hard we try, it's just not natural to bless those who curse you. No matter how hard we try, we can't live up to this ideal. So what gives? Why is Jesus commanding us to do something that we can't do? Like, why is that command even there? Here's the deal. Although we can't live up to those commands we can't live up to that standard there is one who has look at verse 22 it says of Jesus he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly you see Jesus did what we couldn't do He was perfect and innocent, and yet He came to die on the cross for sinners. Jesus came to take the punishment that we deserve for our failure to submit to authority, for our rebellion against God's authority. This is amazing. Think about about this. The same God who sets up and appoints kings, like the God who put Pontius Pilate into his position of authority, the God who put uh, Caiaphas and Ananias, the high priests, into place, that same God who put these authority figures into place left heaven and came to earth and subjected himself to their authority so that he could go to the cross and die on behalf of sinners. Think about the (laughs) self-restraint that Jesus exercised on the cross as the people whose very breath He was giving them in that moment were spitting on Him and cursing Him and murdering Him. And He stayed on the cross out of His love for us and out of submission to the Father. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree 
Jesus was treated the way that sinners deserve to be treated. And because of that, if you place your faith in Him, you can be treated the way that Jesus deserves to be treated. How does all of this help us to submit to authority when we're being treated unfairly? Because once you've received grace like this, you'll extend it to others. Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. says there was a servant who owed 10,000 talents and a servant who owed 100 denarii. 10,000 talents, so one talent was about 20 years worth of wages. This servant owed 10,000 talents. So this is a hyperbolic statement. Jesus is trying to say he owed way more than he could ever pay back. And his master said, you need to pay me what you owe. And he went and he fell on his knees before the master and said, please just give me more time. I promise I'll pay you back, which is a ridiculous statement because he's never going to pay back $6 billion worth of debt. And so the master knows this and the master out of mercy and out of grace says, your your debt is forgiven. I'm not only going to give you more time, I'm just erasing your debt. You're free to go. And he, he runs out rejoicing. But he doesn't rejoice for long because it says that he went out and he found a a fellow servant who owed him just a hundred denarii, which which was only about four months worth of wages. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and said, I promise I'll pay you back. Just give me a little bit more time. I'm trying to get the money together. And he said, no, pay me what you owe now. And he had him thrown into prison until he would pay up his debt. Well, some of the other servants heard about this. And they saw the injustice of it, and they went and they reported this to the master. And the master summoned this unforgiving servant. And he said, you wicked servants. I forgave you this tremendous debt. Ought you not have also forgiven your fellow servant who owed you so little in comparison? The point of the parable is that unforgiveness is unjustifiable. It's meant to make it look preposterous when we try to hold a grudge against another person or when we try to uh, get back or get even with another person. Friends, we've been forgiven much, so we're able to show grace and extend great grace towards others. Not only does the uh, atonement of Jesus help us see that we ourselves are recipients of grace, But the empowerment of Jesus actually changes our heart from the inside out to make us more like Him. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you were healed. A lot of people try to take that verse and use it to say that we're guaranteed physical healing. If you just have enough faith, by His stripes you're healed. Just go and claim your healing. That's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about being spiritually healed. It's talking about being healed because at one time we were rebellious in nature. At one time we were corrupt in our sinful nature. But we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are a new creature. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us who's transforming us from the inside out giving us the desire and the ability to do the things pleasing to God. So the empowerment of Jesus actually helps us to literally be Christ-like. So how are you going to show grace towards people who are mistreating you? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, the atonement of Jesus, the empowerment of Jesus, and the enthronement of Jesus also enables us to show grace towards others who are mistreating us. 
In verse 23, we read that when Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So as the Son of God, Jesus completely trusted his vindication to the Father. He submitted to the Father's will in Gethsemane, and he submitted to the mistreatment of Pilate. He submitted to death on a cross, but Jesus is not dead anymore. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. 1 Peter 3.22 says that He has gone into heaven and He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So all things are in subjection to Jesus. This is so important for us to understand here because Jesus has resumed His rightful place on the throne as King and Judge. That means that He's coming back to judge the living and the dead and everyone will give an account to Him. And the only way that you can truly turn the other cheek and forgive, the only way that you can forego revenge is if you are confident that there is a just judge who will see that you get justice. Jesus will ensure that happens upon His return on Judgment Day. Every single evil deed will either be covered by the blood of Christ or repaid justly by God on Judgment Day. Every deed, every deed that you've done, and every deed that's been done to you will either be covered by the blood of Christ or repaid justly by God on Judgment Day. This frees Christians not only to refuse revenge, but to even pray for the salvation of our enemies. Some of you in this room have had some very bad things happen to you in your life. And you need to hear this clearly. God is not saying you just need to let that go and stop making a big deal of it. Injustice is a very big deal to God. If you have been mistreated, if you have been abused, if you've been assaulted sexually, if you have been bullied, God sees and He knows every single misdeed done to you, and He sees and He knows every single one of your tears. God is angry at wicked deeds like this, and He is not sweeping them under the rug. They will be dealt with. This is why, by the way, the idea that, that this notion out there um, that many people have that God will simply pretend that our sin didn't happen and that He'll just kind of forgive it and it'll go away and everybody's going to get into heaven, it simply doesn't work. Because if you believe that, then there is no way that you can ever truly let go of bitterness and the desire for revenge. Because in that case, if you die without having evened the score with the person who hurt you, the score will never be evened. You will never have justice if that's the case. But thankfully, that's not actually what God is like. The Bible tells us what God is like, and He is a God of justice. He will judge evil. And if you are a Christian, knowing that will truly set you free from bitterness and anger to show radical love to your enemies. And if you are not a Christian, my hope is that hearing this today will be the wake-up call that you need to repent and to receive the free offer of forgiveness that Jesus is extending to you right now. There is no refuge from Him, only in Him. And as Christians submitting to the authorities God has put in place around us is one of the greatest opportunities to give the world a picture of the meekness and humility of Jesus. 
we've got such an opportunity, especially as you know, religious liberty rights erode in our country. Let's not mourn the loss of it and despair, but let's see it as an opportunity to demonstrate the grace of Jesus Christ to Washington, D.C. And there's nothing countercultural about demanding your own way. But it'll leave a mark when you turn the other cheek. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to the authorities God has put into place in your life. And for non-believers here, if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian or you're not sure if you've ever really submitted to God like this, I urge you to do that today. The incredible thing is that even though you've rebelled against Him, He is extending His hand of grace to you today. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you a time to respond to that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Uh, and we're going to close out with uh, a closing song. But while Carrie and the team are, are playing this morning, uh, right where you are in your seat, uh, if you want to pl- pray and give your life to Jesus Christ this morning, if you want to submit your life to Him for the first time, you can do that and you'll be forgiven of your sins. Christ died for sinners. And if you acknowledge that and you believe that He died and rose, you will be saved. Let me urge you, please don't make the foolish decision of putting this off. Of Don't let this moment pass by. If you continue to rebel against God, you will face God's wrath on Judgment Day. And I don't want that to be true for anyone here. So I urge you to repent of your sins and to humble yourself and place your faith in Jesus this morning and have a new life in Christ. There is nothing better than submitting to our good Father who loves us and knows what is best for us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and sing. God, I thank You so much for Your Word. God, I thank You for Your goodness and the way that You have designed the created order. God, we confess that oftentimes we do rebel against You, and we pretend that we know what's best, and we try to wrestle control away from you. God, I pray that you'd forgive us for the times in which we do that. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us go out from here uh, being humble and meek people who will trust you by submitting to the authority figures that you've put in our lives around us. God, help us to love people who are hard to love. God, help us not to repay evil with evil, but to respond with kindness. God, I pray that you would help us to be more like you, Jesus. Lord, I I just pray that our church would be known in Washington, D.C. as a church that loves you with all of our heart and loves people fiercely and unconditionally. May that be true of every single one of us in here. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.